head. But this evening, I want to really speak about the radical nature of what you've embarked on, if you've embarked on the path of meditation. Um, I hesitate to call it Buddhism, it's not actually even a word I like particularly, um, but certainly the, what we would term the Buddha's path, his way to waking up, is very radical. It's as radical now, I think, as it was two and a half thousand years ago when basically he brought these teachings to an Indian population in northeast India. Why is it so radical? Well, let me say something about what I think has happened to it. Well, you know, it's, it was very radical, and over, progressively over the centuries, it's been de-radicalized. It's been turned into a religious message. And this is very far from the Buddha's original intention and his radicality, even in his own time, because he was an entirely practical thinker, a practitioner, who wandered around northern India giving a message which was, as I say, extremely disturbing to those who lived at his own time, and I think can disturb us now. And in fact, in many ways, if it's not disturbing you in some way, it's not really working, um, because it's meant to shake up complacencies. Um, I've often said in this room, and in fact we said it quite recently uh, to a previous group that was here just a couple of days before you arrived, that actually the Buddha's teaching should come with a health warning. This could seriously change your life. Because it's meant to. What, are he, what he is offering us is a glimpse of freedom. Now, we in the West often conceive the notion of freedom as a freedom to do all kinds of things. The freedom that the Buddha speaks about is a freedom from. And the freedom from that he speaks about is a freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion. In a way, that's a very radical teaching, offering us that possibility of the freedom from those three things, from the greed, the aversion, and the delusion. The delusion really which is a synonym for the ignorance, the ignorance that I spoke about this morning, um, is the root of the other two. It is the, if you like, the ground upon which the other two rest and emerge from. He's offering us a radical path to waking up. This is part of the freedom as well. And this is much, much to be preferred to the word that's used so frequently about what the Buddha's path is about, which is enlightenment. It's not even accurate to the original languages in which this is spoken about. The Buddha is an awakened one. The very word Buddha means one who has woken up. I think I explored this very briefly with you last night, and what he's woken up to is the way things actually are. Um, to the way they are and the way they manifest in our lives. Actually, to what we, in our sleep of ignorance, overlook continuously. The other thing that makes his teaching radical is he doesn't actually offer the consolations that many religious paths offer. 
even if there was, and I say even if, and I put that in square, scare quotes, even if there was something such as literal rebirth, which is often a very controversial area in speaking about Buddhism in a Western context, even if there was literal rebirth, it would be no consolation. Yeah. It would be no consolation. In fact, it's not a good thing. You know, even among traditional societies, the idea of being reborn again and again and again. So he's not offering us a, a consolation of some kind of post-mortem survival. What he is actually offering us is a way of living life as fully and as wholesomely as possible. And in one of the texts he said, this is possible not in future lives, but it's possible in this very life, right here, right now, that we have this possibility of being able to wake up. But in order to wake up, we have to be, in a sense, shaken. We have to be shaken to the realities that we live within. And part of that waking up is literally waking up to those realities. We have to wake up to what the Buddha says is inevitable in life. And I think if we think about it, even just very shallowly, we see that a certain degree of pain, a certain degree of distress, a certain degree of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness, is what the human condition comes with. That's what, in a sense, just by being embodied as we are, we will get certain things occurring to us. Uh, namely, um, old age, sickness and death. This is what comes to us. This is part of being human, part of having a body. This will come to us eventually, sometimes sooner rather than later. A tricycle a number of years ago, the American Buddhist magazine, ran a, a little spoof movie poster that said, Coming to you soon, old age, sickness and death. So, this is not something we're going to avoid. There is not an an unrealism to the Buddha's message. It's totally realistic. It's something we have to not reject, but embrace. So, in embracing the difficulties in life, we embrace life. This is what we learn to do. The path that is offered is one not of rejection, it's not pushing away, it's not even one of ultimately detachment, which is not a word I particularly like, but it's one of learning to embrace all of life, its beauties, its wonders, as well as all of the difficulty that comes with living the human condition. What Hamlet might have referred to as the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So he starts, inevitably, with what he calls the truth of pain, the truth of distress, the truth of unsatisfactoriness. This word that I gave to you last night and said, well, actually there's no real translation of this word, the word dukkha. And I don't want to be obscurantist and just use you know, Middle Indian terms for the sake of it. Uh, But this really is a word that we cannot translate, and its depth and its profundity is extremely great. Its range of significance is extremely wide. It covers pretty well most of the human condition in terms of 
things that we find unsatisfactory in our lives. We can think of it as a theoretical stance, but it isn't. You either have it or you don't. And I often do this as an experiment with my students and say to them, if there is something at this very, very moment, just now, right now, that you would like changed, that you would like to be different than it is at this moment. You know, perhaps it's too hot, it's too cold, there's somebody boring, wittering on at the front. <laughs> you know, if there's something you'd like that you'd like to be changed at this moment in time, you got dukkha. Yeah, you got dukkha because dukkha is about dissatisfaction. One of the things that we possibly are, from this perspective, is pretty well dissatisfied for most of our lives. Okay? There are all sorts of things we can get dissatisfied with. So dukkha covers this range, this vast range of the areas which our dissatisfaction can alight on. From the, the small to the great. From the buying something, it's not quite the right colour, to the distress that comes about by losing a loved one. The word literally in Pali and Sanskrit, the word dukkha literally means um, a dirty space or hole to be in. (laughs) It sounds very contemporary when you translate it like that. It also referred to the hole in a wheel into which the axle fitted. which went round and round and round and was rather unsteady and was full of dirt and grease and grit. And and so therefore there was a kind of friction constantly there. One of the people I studied with for a while in India, which I was fortunate enough to do in my early days, was uh, one of the Dalai Lama's teachers. And he said that uh, dukkha was not like being stabbed in the back. It wasn't a sharp pain. He said, envisage this, it was like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. That was dukkha. It forms, if you like, the warp and woof to much of our lives. It's there, it's present, it's tangible, it's palpable. In all of our basic relations to what arises, there is often dukkha present. Now, I don't want to paint a pessimistic picture, but the Buddha really stresses that this is something we have to understand. That we have to understand where we are, how we live, and how that dissatisfaction is ubiquitous and permeates so much, even the pleasurable. Because I know the pleasurable isn't going to last. It's going to change. And so the Buddha, in the early discourses in particular, says in order to understand this, we must understand the dukkha in a sense which is inevitable and the dukkha which is not inevitable. Yeah. The dukkha that is inevitable, inevitable is literally what he calls dukkha dukkha. <laughs> it's literally the pain of pain. And this covers all of our sicknesses, our ailments, our aging our loss of loved ones and our own death. It covers all of those pains which are unavoidable. The pains that simply come, as I said when I started talking this evening, that come with having this body. There's no 
There's no denial of this. There's nothing unrealistic about this. The Buddha himself, if you read the early text, does not avoid this kind of pain. Now, just as a little bit of kind of historical information, I mean, according to the early text, he lives to quite a large age for ancient India. He lives roughly to the age of 80, which is just, he lives long. You know? He walks constantly teaching for 45 years. In fact, he's born in the open and he dies in the open. You know, he's born under trees and he dies under trees. In the course of that 45 years of travelling, and particularly towards the end of his life, he suffers all the usual things that people would do who live that kind of life. On occasions he's very ill, he suffers from the kind of usual ailments, particularly if you've ever been to India, you'll know, things such as dysentery. Even towards the end of his life, just before he dies, this is what he's basically got, a form of chronic dysentery for various reasons, which I won't go into. He is a little bit creaky towards the end of his life. In fact, in one particular passage, he says, you know, this old body, he refers to himself as the Tathagata and never as the Buddha, he said, this old body of the Tathagata is only kept going every morning by being strapped up like an old cart. He kind of jokes about his decrepitude. So even this figure... You know, who becomes, in a way, the figurehead of the whole of this tradition, this two-and-a-half-thousand-year-old tradition which we call Buddhism, in the early texts is a very human figure. He's, he suffers, he gets old, and eventually he dies. Yeah? So if the figure we call the Buddha doesn't avoid that, well, I don't think we are either. So this is the inevitability. This is part of the pain of pain. The dukkha, dukkha. Then there is something he refers to in Pali as viparanama dukkha, which means the dukkha of change. This is something he speaks about continuously in the course of his teachings. Impermanence. Impermanence, impermanence, impermanence. We hear it as a message that runs through everything. Even, even at the end of his life, in a very famous sutta called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, at the end of his life he's dying and his close attendant, his cousin actually, somebody called Ananda, is basically leaning on the doorpost of the hut that he's staying in and he's crying, he's wailing. And the Buddha goes, Ananda, have you actually listened to anything I've said? <laughs> yeah. He's saying that impermanence is, again, in a sense, like dukkha. It's, uh, as a form of dukkha, it's written in to the warp and woof of the world. You know, I think we all know this. This is not a big one to get our heads around. You know, there's change that works for us, and there's often change that doesn't work for us. And it's usually with the latter, the change that doesn't work for us in some way, that we have a quarrel with we have an argument with. When change is beneficial for us, and I think we have to hear it in both of these senses, because not all change is unbeneficial. When my headache goes, I'm delighted. When the pain goes, that I might be suffering from an illness, when that goes, I'm also highly delighted. If I get promotion in my job, that also pleases me. 
if I get a pay rise that comes with that promotion, well, I'm ecstatic. However, if it works the opposite way, and for example, that the change goes that actually my, I don't know, the firm I'm working for is suffering from the recession and I have to take a pay cut and only work a certain number of days a week, then I'm not quite so happy about that. When people, perhaps, in relationships split up, I'm not so happy about that. When somebody has changed so beyond how I knew them that a relationship is no longer possible. And all the changes, the changes, the changes that we see around us, often that are not working for us, changes that make us feel unsafe, unstable, insecure, changes in political structures, in the world, you know, nobody knows what is secure or not secure anymore. You know, the, the economic recession took some, so many people by surprise, changed their ways of life completely, destroyed economies in countries that had been quite affluent. And that's just talking about the developed Western world. And then there's all the insecurities of living in undeveloped countries you know, where things don't remain the same. So change is something that we encounter again and again and again, and sometimes it's good for us, and sometimes, a lot of the time, it isn't. It's something, as I say, that leads to a sense of insecurity. However, there's very little we can do about it. Just like the dukkha dukkha, um, I can take all the precautions in my life to lead a healthy life, but I'm not going to evade death, and certainly probably not sickness. Yeah despite the fact I may have led an exemplary life in terms of what I've eaten and drunk over my lifetime, this body will do what this body does. It is not under my control. When we look around the world and observe the changes in the world, well, even the good things sometimes are not under my control. The good things that happen to me. I mean, I could work for years diligently and never be rewarded for the diligence. But sometimes, sometimes it will, in some senses, bring its rewards. You know, I will get the promotion, I will get the raise in salary or whatever it might be. And these are just very mundane examples here. So these changes are not really under our control. The Buddha speaks about impermanence in many, many different ways. However, as I say, it's not a difficult one to understand. It's a difficult one to live, to live that impermanence, to live the impermanence that you are, to celebrate, in a way, that impermanence rather than to reject it. Because, I say, to, to, to live the impermanence you are is, in many ways, to be a being who's moving towards its end. Now, this is not a morbid thought. It's one that actually should make us, in a way, really be here for this moment. This is why it's spoken about so much, not just in early Buddhism, which I'm speaking chiefly from, that position. It's spoken about throughout um, Buddhist traditions, the embracing of the inevitability of death and how it should actually make us live. Yeah. I lived in Tibetan society for quite a number of years, and in Tibetan society, um, there used to be a little saying in Tibetan that Tibetans were very fond of, 
uh, used to go something like this. He said, there's one thing that's absolutely certain, death. There's one thing that's absolutely uncertain, when. <laughs> and then they'd fall around laughing. <laughs> In general. Because this was meant, in a sense, as a spur to live, to really be here. To be here right now. To face life's difficulties, to face life's challenges, to embrace them, and to move forward with them as well. So we don't have to take these things in the way we often have done in the West. Asian culture in general hasn't had the um, kind of phobia that Western culture often has towards death. You know, if you live in India for any length of time, well, you see it very, very often. You see death around you. you know, it's something you can't avoid. You see the funeral pyres. You see even bodies washed up on sides of rivers that haven't been burnt properly, being eaten by dogs. Now, I don't recommend this, but it's sobering in the sense that it brings you face-to-face with the inevitability of this. And this is all part of the Dukkha Dukkha and the Viparanama Dukkha, the Dukkha of Change. So these are the inevitables. We could list them all out, the inevitables of our lives, but pretty well high up on the list would be these existential dimensions to our lives. The old age, the sickness, and the death. Then we come to the final form of dukkha that the Buddha speaks about. And this is what's known as either Sankara dukkha or Sankata dukkha. It means pretty well the same thing. The dukkha that is constructed. This is not inevitable. This is the dukkha that we construct. We construct it around often the inevitables. The things that we can't avoid. This is what the Buddha believes that we can have freedom from. This is his teaching is that we can have freedom from the dukkha that we construct for ourselves and live within. In many ways, the sankhara dukkha, the sankhata dukkha, sankhara, by the way, is a word that means to be formed, to be constructed in some way. This form of dukkha is a self-inflicted wound. It's the wound that we give to ourselves. Many of you will have probably heard of one of the similes that the Buddha uses in the texts, which is the simile of two arrows or two darts. First, we're hit by one arrow with all its pain and all the problems that arise from that, but then we willfully shove another one in. (laughs) It's that one, it's this kind of willful creating more pain out of pain and difficulty that the Buddha is saying that we can be free from. We cannot be free from change, we cannot be free of the dukkha dukkha and the existentiality of that dukkha dukkha, We are not superhuman, we're human. And so he's saying, really we have to understand these three things. We have to really embrace this. And understand how we 
take the difficulties of life and we create even more problems out of them. So not, not only is life difficult, we make it even more difficult. Now I'm generalizing here, but I'm sure most of us can see areas in our life where we, for example, take something, something that's inevitable, that's happened, and we'll, we'll, we will construct something around it based on rage and rejection, anger, irritability, resentment, greed. We take something which is inevitable and we construct around it. We narrativize it. We make narratives out of it. We even create narratives for ourselves of the things that might happen as well. Not just the things that have, have happened, but the things that might happen. Mark Twain, the American author, once said, you know, my life has been full of untold miseries, most of which have never happened. Yeah, I think it's that sense of what we construct for ourselves that the Buddha also is concerned about. If you know and have read material on Buddhism, you'll probably know that this dukkha that I speak of this evening is what's generally called the first of the noble truths. Well, for a start off, it's a bad translation. Um, it's actually the first of the ennobling truths. Yeah. There's nothing noble about dukkha, but there's something about no ennobling about inquiring into it. Yeah. It simply doesn't mean noble truths in, in Pali or Sanskrit or whatever formulation it's put into. It means to be ennobled by the inquiry into dukkha. And the second of those ennobling truths is, of course, that dukkha arises in our life. And here specifically, the dukkha that's being spoken about is the dukkha of construction. So I think we have to hear the sense, the dukkha that's spoken about in the texts and that we read about in popular books on Buddhism, having two faces. The dukkha which we can't avoid and the dukkha which is our choice in the matter. So the second of the ennobling truths becomes the truth of an origin to dukkha. It's called dukkha samudhya. There is an origin to it. This is something that you'll find littered throughout, again, the text, that the Buddha does not speak about an uncaused world. In fact, because things have causes and conditions that sustain them, if those causes and conditions are changed, then inevitably what the resultant was will also change. Here, In many ways, this is his formula for waking up. If living a miserable life, and I'm putting it as bluntly as possible, if living a miserable life is dependent on causes and conditions, change those causes and conditions, you might live a different life. Yeah. This is why it's radical. It's saying this is not a question of belief, but it's a question of something we often have to do in our lives. The changes that we have to make. In ancient India, he described this as swimming against the tide. This is what we're doing. We're swimming against the tide. Now, if this was true two and a half thousand years ago, I think it's even probably truer to this day. There's a huge tide that's going in the opposite direction of this. 
and doesn't necessarily want to change. Society and the individuals within society and the goals and the the goodies that are often offered out by these societies are something which is very tempting, very tantalising, and most people go with the tide, not against it. But the Buddha sees this as not a recipe for happiness. He doesn't see this as a recipe for contentment. He doesn't see this as a recipe of really being able to live wholesomely in this world, doing this. So coming back to the second of these ennobling truths, he speaks about a, an origin of dukkha. He calls this craving or thirst. In the original language, the word that's used here is a word which is called tanha, which literally means a thirst that cannot be quenched. This is what the origin of dukkha is. And it's a, it's a circular dimension here because why do we crave? Well, we crave because life is difficult. You know, we try to assuage the pains in life by giving ourselves nice things. You know, having little goodies in our lives which somehow mitigate or assuage some of the pains and difficulties of living. Think of you know, coming home after a hard day's work. Often what do we do? We do the worst possible thing, which is go and give ourselves a treat, you know, which usually is something that's not terribly good for us. <laughs> um, we will often, and this is not a criticism of the medium, but it's just saying we will often, for example, collapse in front of a television screen. imbibing stuff um, which sometimes is not terribly good for us. So in trying to deal with life's difficulties we compound the problem more often than not by introducing aspects into our lives that don't have have to be there. You know, sitting in front of the television screen is a very good one, particularly if it's, I don't know, soap operas. I often say to people that come to our house, you know, why watch soap operas? If you want to see greed, aversion and delusion, close your eyes. <laughs> you know, it's all there. It's you know, just right there, right, right here, right now. Now, this is not a criticism of this because we can use this sort of material mindfully. A lot of the time we use it mindlessly. So we crave and often compound our problems. We crave to assuage difficulty, and that craving leads to further craving, which leads back into experiencing more dukkha in our lives. Because if we can't get what we crave, then we have only to think of our societies, which offer out many things for many individuals which are beyond their financial reach, for example. It leads them to some forms of dissatisfaction. Using another word that we can translate as dukkha. Dissatisfaction. Whether you're from kind of working class backgrounds to upper class backgrounds, there's often dissatisfactions which are around materiality, for example. About having too little or not having enough or wanting something that we can't actually get. This was another definition that the Buddha gave of dukkha. Yeah. He said that it was often not having what we want 
or getting what we don't want. Sometimes there seems to be a lot of the latter in life, getting a lot of what we don't want. Oscar Wilde, in one of his plays, once said, you know, there is nothing, nothing worse than not getting what you want than getting what you want. Because yeah. again, we don't, we don't rest. We're not satisfied. So this is why Dukkha and its, if you like, what's implicated in it, this craving, this unquenchable thirst, is powering us into unsatisfactory states continuously. even when we get that thing that we want it's often not quite right or even if it's right for that moment how long does the pleasure, the satisfaction the contentment, the happiness last before you're on the treadmill again looking for something else now the Buddha said that we had to get this very very clear this is, again, and I really, really want to emphasize this over the week, understanding this material and how often we live it is not another cause for beating ourselves up. It's not another cause, actually, for making ourselves miserable. Here. The understanding of it is a spur to being able to overcome it. Yeah, not to overcome the difficulties. I, mean, I really will emphasize that yet again. Not overcoming the difficulties of life, but learning to live with them in a wholesome way in which we can embrace them and embrace all the other factors of life without pushing anything away. So that we actually live a life of balance. And in many ways the synonym for awakening is equanimity. Now equanimity is a constant engagement Equanimity is not a disengagement. Many people hear the word equanimity and think it's kind of, you know, kind of remaining aloof from things. Equanimity means retaining your balance in the midst of the good things that happen to you and in the midst of the bad things that happen to you. So there's actually a word that's used in another set of Buddhist literature um, which actually literally means in the middleness. It's being in the middle of life without being swayed by good things. And I think most of us have good things happen to us in our lives. But there are those inevitable areas of dukkha which are the bad things which happen to us. And equally those will not push and pull us in directions that we don't want to go. A lot of the time we can feel like, I don't know, pinballs in a pinball machine just being thrown around by the forces that we encounter. So if it's good, we want more. If it's bad, we don't want it. And we're just kind of like that pinball being thrown around in life, buffeted by it. Yeah. To use another metaphor, like a, I don't know, like a boat on the ocean being tossed around. When it's calm, it's fine. When it's being tossed around, you're seasick. Yeah. So one of the other goals that the Buddha is speaking about is actually retaining one's balance in the face of life. In the face of everything that's going to occur occur to us in the course and the unfoldment of this life as it progresses. 
Because it's bound to have its sicknesses, it's bound to have its losses, but it's also going to have its beauty and its wonder, its astonishing parts as well. You know, this is what comes with the territory of being human, as I've said right from the start. This is part of the human condition. And so, you know, kind of coming towards the conclusion of this talk tonight, one of the elements is the realism of what is happening, happening to us and the embracing of the what is happening to us. We learn to embrace some of the elements that are occurring to us when we sit, when we walk, when we do these things which in many ways are artificial. Sitting on a cushion with one's eyes closed for 45 minutes, 30 minutes, however long you may sit, it's in many ways an artificial, it's an artificial posture, it's an artificial state of being. But we learn from it. Walking in the garden, as I've you know, been encouraging you to do today, saying this is just as important as sitting. You know, what do we learn from that? Well, we learn to encounter the body in motion, but we also learn to see an awful lot that we also see arising on the cushion. We see the distractedness, the agitation that I spoke about this morning in the instructions. We see the lack of energy, the slothfulness, the heavy body in motion. When there's very little energy there. When we can't vitalize what we're engaging in. So we see these things. So what we have in these artificial constructs, which are actually such an important part of this, they're not the totality of this path, but there's such an important dimension of it. What we have is our own little laboratory. Yeah. This is our laboratory where we can test things out, where we can see perhaps you know, where the Buddha's teachings apply to us, yeah. where they apply to us. What he did not want go right back to, again, part of the radicality of his teaching, what he did not want was believers. This is certainly something the Buddha never encouraged here. He never encouraged believers. He offered offered an invitation to those people who became his followers. And the invitation in Pali goes, Ehipasiko. Come and see. Come and take a look for yourself. That was his invitation. It was totally empirical. It wasn't believe me and follow me. It was take a look and see and see if this is true for you. And if it's true for you, you might wish to do something about it. You might wish to do something about it that might eventually lead to being able to let go of these self-inflicted wounds that we seem to live continuously. And I say continuously because there is something compulsive about this, something very repetitive about the narratives of construction that we bring to our experience, that we bring, for example, to the difficult things that we encounter in life. There is a word for this, as you probably imagine, in the original languages. It's exactly the same in Pali and Sanskrit as the word sangsara. The word sangsara in these languages literally means, literally means, it's derived from a root that means to go round in circles. 
This was the condition that the Buddha was indicating, that there was a compulsion and repetitiveness to our behavior that led to similar results. Again and again and again and again. If there is a rebirth, this is probably the rebirth. We're doing the same stuff again and again and again and again. We are experiencing very similar dukkha in doing this again and again. Have you ever noticed if you've had a habit? If you have a habit in in some way, the reason why we build up habits is because we think they're useful. And often this is not conscious, but sometimes it's quite conscious in the way that we do things. And often how, even if it's, say, a materialist habit or a a habit of food or drink or something like that, um, and it's not giving us what we want, we'll say, well, I'll give it another go in the sheer disbelief that it's not giving us what we actually want. So I'll keep on doing it because I don't quite believe it's not going to give me the happiness that I think it's going to give me. So I keep out going out and buying things because, you know, that's what the world says is going to bring us happiness. Well, at least until the next model arrives, you know, or the next, you know, the next style or whatever it might be. There is this myth of happiness that's being often offered um, by you know, consumerism and by, by the advertising industry. And this is part of the world we live in. Now, there are many other ways. This is a very easy example to give. And yet we, in some ways, know, heart of hearts, that often these things are not going to give us what we're looking for. Yeah. The materialist stuff is pleasurable. Now, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I don't think there's any doubt that some of this stuff will give us a degree of pleasure. That pleasure will you know, arise, and often it will diminish with time. Yeah. The, things that, you know, the pleasure that things give us. The Buddha, in one of his similes, likened this search for overcoming dukkha by a degree of materiality, he likened it to a dog sat outside of a butcher's shop. And the butcher throws the dog a bone, and the bone doesn't have any flesh on it at all. It just, he says it's just smeared with blood. And the dog, in desperation to try and find nutrition, chews it over and over and over and over again, but gets no satisfaction from it whatsoever. Now, I think this is a good way, as I say, it's a simile for likening it to what's going on often in our lives, in that we do the same things again and again and again, hoping that they're going to produce a result, which might be, I don't know, let's just bandy a few words around, happiness, contentment, peace. I finally got the thing I really wanted. Now I can rest. There's a kind of mythology behind this. In other words, a narrative mythology that we live. Now, just to finish the talk, because what I want to do is make these progressive through the week, this evening, I want to leave us with the thought, well, actually, perhaps this is not the way that we're ever going to find this peace and contentment. The craving that the Buddha speaks of, by its very nature, as he says, is not satisfiable. It can't be satisfied. We see desires arising in our minds. I'm sure 
probably during the day you've had a few rising in your minds even today. Things that you would like. But if you notice what happens with desire, which often there's a synonym for craving here, is they arise and they pass away. Yeah. That they arise and they pass away. They might be you know, supplemented by something else or supplanted by another craving, another desire, but that too will arise and it will pass away as well. We don't have to buy into everything our minds are telling us. And desire and craving is a good one. You know, we follow that impulsively, compulsively, actually. You know, we're propelled into buying things we can't afford. You know, often trying to assuage this dukkha that we experience in our lives, this difficulty. And the Buddha is really saying, well, perhaps this isn't the way to go. Most of us have probably been doing it for quite a long time. Yeah. We've been doing this stuff again and again and again for probably the duration of our lives ever since we could, I don't know, go out and shop with some money. And this is just one example. I'll give other examples as we go through the week. So I think the one thing we can probably safely say, it hasn't yet probably produced what you're looking for. Yeah. And you might try the rest of your life and it still might not do it. So the Buddha is really trying to get us to see this, to see that we have to come into a different relationship with the dukkha that we experience and not try to push it away by substituting it with other things which seem temporarily to still the pain. But then the pain comes back with a vengeance as well. So his path is a path of finding something that actually works. Something that actually will last in our experience. Rather than create this temporary alleviament of distress that we find in our lives. So there is an inevitability to dukkha. And there is the dukkha that we create and add by all of our narratives and all of our behaviours that actually make it even more difficult. So what I want to do in subsequent nights is actually explore some of the ways that the Buddha says that we can actually start to move away from this behavior, from these ways of thinking. Ways of thinking which are actually deeply, deeply rooted in liking something and wanting more of it, which is greed, Aversion, wanting nothing to do with something, pushing it away, don't want this in my life, and the kind of delusion that they rest upon. His path is a path to developing their opposites. It's a path to developing, instead of a greed, a generosity. And this is not just about material things. A generosity with oneself towards life and towards others. A friendliness rather than an aversion. One of the themes, one of the major themes of what we're going to start exploring tomorrow in some of the practices, a genuine opening up towards a friendlier and kindlier and gentler way of being with difficulty, being with others. And finally, instead of delusion, to open up ourselves to understanding the way things really are. And I'll... Speak about that tomorrow night. I'll pick up on that. Um, what does this understanding things the way they really are mean?
for us in our lives. Okay, thank you for your attention. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.